Welcome to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring you weekly sermons that uplift your soul, strengthen your spirit, and praise the Lord. Whatever your reason for listening, we're grateful for you spending your time with us. May God open your heart to love and your ears to hear. Hear now a reading from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 11, and verse 15. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they by his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now you do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall, you shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near in your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come into poverty. And he kissed his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked to him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. As we have alluded to, in the service this weekend, there's a special general conference called the United Methodist Church. And the general conference is the official legislative body of the United Methodist Church. And the purpose of this special general conference is to vote on the denomination's direction on the issue of homosexuality. Language in the Book of Discipline had been void in the Book of Discipline until 1972 when the church set parameters therein and ministry to, with, for, and by persons who are homosexual. And ever since then, and before then, the United Methodist Church has struggled with that matter and what it means. In 2016, the General Conference of the United Methodist Church took a major step forward to try and resolve the struggle when it approved what's called the Commission on a Way Forward to be appointed by and make recommendations to the Council of Bishops. This commission was charged with finding a way forward for our church that maximizes the presence of a United Methodist witness in as many places in the world as possible, that allows for as much contextual differentiation as possible, and that balances an approach to different theological understandings of human sexuality with a desire for as much unity as possible. And as we speak, delegates are meeting in St. Louis to consider the legislation that's growing out of the commission's work. And here is the hope 
of why this group is meeting, to allow us to focus on our mission and our shared ministry. But it is easy to get distracted from our mission and our shared ministry, particularly when you read headlines from USA Today that say the United Methodist Church will vote on LGBT issues. The outcome could tear it apart. We're from the AJC where it says, United Methodists fear split over LGBTQ vote in the church. Or from NPR, it is hard to stay unified when headlines say and lead with information such as this, United Methodist Church to debate LGBTQ clergy and same-sex marriage. But as is the case with many headlines, they don't tell the whole story. I did not read those articles to see what propositions they made, to see where they might lead, to say what direction the church I serve was going. Instead, I think there's more to the story than a headline could ever muster. And I'm not going to let someone else's headline tell the story of God's love. So what would be our headline in reading Joseph and the story of his brothers? Now, if we stopped with the reading today, it would simply be Joseph forgives his brothers. Or maybe after years of wandering, Joseph is reunited. But there's more to the story, as is the case with most headlines. There's more than Joseph forgives his brothers. The story begins back in the 42nd chapter of Genesis with brothers who fight. Shocker. But these brothers are different because Joseph is the favorite and they know it. These 11 other brothers, these would-be lying brothers, don't know what Joseph is going to become, but they stand at a distance and they judge and they grow envious and they fail to understand Joseph's gift. And they push Joseph in a pit and sell him to slavery in Egypt. You know, Joseph has always been a bit of a know-it-all. He's been one of those guys that, you know, you really don't like, but he's right. I mean, he has these dreams about things that people don't understand, but he's able to interpret his dreams, and not like the dreams where you're falling and you wake up, or the dreams where your teeth fall out and you Google, what does it mean when my teeth fall out in my dreams? No, no, no. Joseph dreamed about famine and fruitfulness and faithfulness. Joseph experienced dreams on a deeper level than his brothers, and he knew what they meant, and they prepared him. In his dream, he saw corn, and Joseph himself was a stalk of corn, and the brothers were the other stalks of corn that bowed to Joseph. Later, when Joseph is thrown in prison, in Pharaoh's house, he dreams of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, and the skinny cows consume the fat cows. And Joseph says, this means there are going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So he tells Pharaoh to stockpile and build and save all that he can because it's not always going to be like this. Joseph dreams a different world. And because of that, his brothers are envious and jealous, and they separate themselves from Joseph and put a distance 
between Joseph and their understanding. And now Joseph is faced with these brothers who tricked him, who left him for dead, who beat him, who sold him into slavery, who caused Joseph to never see his father again. And Joseph doesn't immediately rush to forgiveness as our scripture would indicate this morning. Joseph plays a nasty little game of revenge called hide the cup, literally hide the cup. First off, he throws all of his brothers in prison because he accuses them of stealing extra grain that he had planted in their caravan. And when Joseph's servant goes and finds it, he says, aha, you thieves, you must all wait in prison and we'll send back one of your brothers to tell your father what you have done. And then Benjamin, Joseph's favorite brother of the 11, the beloved, comes to him and asks for forgiveness on behalf of the father. And Joseph sends Benjamin on his way with one of his personal cups in his bag, of course. And Joseph's servant goes and tracks down Benjamin and says, you thief, and throws Joseph in jail with the rest of the brothers. And the brothers don't know what is going to happen. Finally, the tables have turned. Finally, Joseph has them right where they want him. Revenge is a dish best served cold upon a platter in Pharaoh's temple. But when Joseph finally reveals himself, he does not do so with revenge or with an aha or with a got you, because the actions of that speak volumes enough. Instead, Joseph asks a question, is my father still alive? It's a very interesting question to ask for someone who's been beaten and sold into slavery and now is on approximately his 52nd, 53rd birthday, wants to know if he will see his father one last time. And his brothers break down. They confess what they did to Joseph years ago. They confess that they have mistreated him, misjudged him, and they're grateful that he is not seeking revenge, but they don't rest. The brothers are not restful. They don't fully understand what's going to happen next because they're playing this game out in their minds. If Joseph is going to trick us, when's the next trick going to happen? But it doesn't come. And maybe that anxiety and that tension that the brothers rest upon serves them well, but maybe, just maybe, Joseph has moved past revenge and into forgiveness. Later in the story, Jacob, the father, dies. And the brothers are charged with the responsibility of burying him back in the land of Cana, a plot bought by Abraham a long time ago. And now that Jacob is dead, the brothers do not rest anymore. In the 50th chapter, the very last chapter of Genesis, they ask themselves, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us in full for the wrong that we've done him now that our father is dead? And so they lie one last time. They haven't learned their lesson. They lie one last time, saying that Jacob urged Joseph to finally forgive everyone. Jacob said no such thing because by Jacob's account, all were reconciled. Scripture does not tell us that that happened. But at that moment, Joseph weeps. Because maybe finally he's recognized that out of all the posturing after all the proof texting, after all 
the theological understanding and the doctrination that he can muster, he realizes that the game of revenge will continue to go on, and maybe he's deciding to say, it stops with me. And the brothers still don't trust. They still don't understand the honesty and the openness with which Joseph, who they have abused, approaches him. And in the 50th chapter, verses 20 through 21, Joseph says, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people, do not be afraid. I myself will provide for you and for your little ones. Revenge is not served cold. Revenge is done away with when Joseph makes the promise to care for others. But when did Joseph really forgive? Was it when he saw his brothers for the first time? Was it after he tricked them? Was it after Jacob's death? Was it after the brothers lied to him? Or was it the moment when Joseph realized that God's prevenient grace had been there all along? We may not know to which we come into God's presence, with the burdens, the anxieties, and the worries that we bear, but Joseph performs the act of reconciliation by reframing his brother's suffering and his suffering as all in one together. In other words, Joseph no longer sees an us versus them, a me versus the 11. We are all God's children. And now future accusations are unnecessary, and we can stop playing the game of who gets it right and who gets it wrong. We don't know exactly how and why Joseph spoke to his brothers. We may not ever know the magical words that were uttered, I'm sorry, I forgive you, it was my fault. But we do know where it starts. Scripture says that Joseph began the conversation to reconciliation with the words, come closer to me. Like Joseph, each one of us must seek out the appropriate words that follow into the path of forgiveness, but we cannot begin without the words, come closer to me. There are times when we will get knocked down and get knocked out, we'll be dragged in, but do you know how to withstand a blow, a real physical blow? If you're going to take a punch, there's a way to survive taking a punch. There's a book called How to Survive Anything, and one of the chapters in this book is how to handle taking a punch. If you know you have no other option, not retreat, not running, it says that if you know you are going to get hit, if someone's leaning back to go at you, it says lean into the punch. Put yourself closer to the aggressor. When you do that, you're taking away the force that they can build up. You're still gonna get hurt, you're still gonna get hit, but it will soften the blow the closer you get to your aggressor. Maybe that's what Joseph knew. The closer he got to his brothers, the less the blow would sting for him and for them. And maybe it's that closeness, not the distance, that leads us to forgiveness, that leads us to being one with each other. Maybe it's not the absence of violence that we seek, but the proximity to love that allows us to move forward. Forgiveness is incomplete until love replaces our hatred and our anger and our judgment. So don't let someone else write your story. 
Don't let someone else write your headline until you are able to extend the invitation, come closer to me. When you feel that you've been given the raw end of the deal through abuse, neglect, or deceit, begin the invitation by saying, come closer to me. And when you have the power in a relationship and you want to convince someone of their wrongness, you have to begin the invitation by saying, come closer to me. When you're worried about a church that you serve, that you love, that you've joined, that you cared for, when you're worried about someone else telling a story of hate rather than a story of love and embrace, begin your story by saying, come closer to me. When you have thrown your brother, your sister into the pit of despair and sold them into slavery in Egypt, kicked them while they're down, torn their favorite robe and lied to their face, and you need repentance and forgiveness, the invitation begins, come closer to me. And when we have let our stubbornness and our own sense of self-righteousness take over our lives, come closer to me. If you're stuck in the present moment and waiting for that happy ending, wondering when it's going to come, Christ says to us, come closer to me. We all bring different perspectives into the world and into our experience. One way that I'm reminded of this is on a trip to Disney that we took growing up. Now, I was more of an Epcot fan than a Disney fan, to be honest. I loved the science and the learning that went behind it. And I remember this one interactive module at Epcot where with our right hand, we grabbed a hot metal pole. And with the left hand, we grabbed a cold metal pole. And the instruction said to hold your hands on these poles for 15 seconds. And then grab a pole in the middle that was the same temperature. And what do you feel? Well, the hand that was hotter felt a coolness to the touch. And a hand that was cold felt a warmth that was needed. The temperature was the same in the middle. And it held everything together. And whether you started out hot and you needed a cool refresher, or whether you started out cold and needed warmth, that piece of center was there. For Joseph, that center is love. For us, that is our position. That is what we cling to. We may wander and stray and grab warmth or grab in search of cold, but we always come back to the place where it's 98.6 degrees, where we feel the warmth, the embrace of each other. So if you come in here cold, if you come in here hot, and if you come in here looking for answers, I invite you to hear Christ say to you, come closer to me. That's the invitation of grace. That's the invitation of God. And that's the invitation that we as a church will extend to the world no matter what is decided in St. Louis. Because grace is greater than all our sin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How good it is to be filled with God's grace. So as you go, be filled with the grace of God and go with this blessing. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. 
May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our arms. May the love of God, the peace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast. We hope that you have found our podcast helpful and hope to be in ministry not only to you, but with you. For more information about Sandy Springs United Methodist Church, please visit www.ssumc.org. Until next time, may God bless you.